Hi, you are now listening to a sermon from Harvest Community Church in Hoffman Estates, Illinois. Today you will hear a sermon from Pastor Dave Lee, so without further ado, here he is. So, we wrapped up last Sunday a 22 sermon series on the book of James. We, it was half a year that we spent studying deeply a letter which was written by a man who had a front row seat to one of the most amazing experiences a human being ever had. James is the younger brother of Jesus, and he grew up in the same house that Jesus grew up in, watching a perfect human life lived out right in front of his face. Now, if you've ever had any sibling rivalry or felt insecure about an older brother or sister who outshined you in every way, imagine what James had to live with. My older brother is the son of God and the savior of the world. And yet, it's not bitterness or envy that marks James's view of God and of his own faith, but one of profound admiration for a brother who displayed to him what it looks like when the gospel is lived out in flesh and blood. When the way that God wants us to live takes residence in a human life, that's what James is describing. And so we spent half a year, and Pastor Jared gave me the excellent suggestion of maybe taking a look back at the series, because sometimes when you're, you're down at the microscope level and looking at every text, you see a lot of richness and, and detail, but in zooming out, you see the, the, the sort of grand sweep of things. If you're new to our church, we're going to catch you up on 22 weeks, like in the Cliff Notes version, and here's how I want you to hear the sermon. Along the way, I think the Holy Spirit, this is at least how I've been praying all week, is that the Holy Spirit would prick your heart for a certain one of these messages that I think God is really challenging something in you, is trying to produce a, an active response in your life. And if as you're hearing the, the recap of each message, something about that kind of tugs at you, why don't you write down the title of that message and consider reading that text again and even going online and listening to the whole message again and seeing why God is bothering your heart or agitating your spirit about one particular one of these messages. And so that's the way I'm going to ask you to hear this as we journey along. It's the first time I've attempted a 22-point sermon. It's going to go faster than you think. So let's fasten our seatbelts and let's take a look back at the series we've just walked through in the book of James. The first message was just an introduction to James and just talking about what an amazing thing it is that we've been granted a view of Christianity from the perspective of somebody who grew up as Jesus' younger brother. And you have to understand that that informs the way James wrote everything. Is that, and that, that's why there's such a strong emphasis in the book of James on a faith that's not just words, but it's put into practice. I don't think... James grew up getting lectured by Jesus all the time. I think James grew up watching Jesus live out everything that he lectured about. And so that's a, a framework of the man who wrote the book. And then the next message was growing through trials, which seems like a, an, like a, a paradoxical statement. I mean, how, does, how do you have any kind of a positive response to trials? The key verse there is chapter 1, verse 2. Consider it pure joy, my brothers and sisters, whenever you face trials of many kinds, because you know that the testing of your faith produces perseverance. And what we said back then was everybody has to go through trouble, but not everybody grows through trouble. You're not going to get any of us 
we're not going to live a trial-free life. You're going to face things you can't handle by yourself. You're going to face difficulty. It's just part of living in a broken world. But we have two options. We can resist it, be bitter about it, hate it, or we can see what God is doing in us through it. And it's possible, as much as you hate the present reality, there's no joy to be found in the suffering itself. But suffering and trials produce in us a kind of spiritual growth which we cannot experience in the good times. And so one of the things he says is if you will persevere through it and let God grow you, you will actually get through trials and come out more mature spiritually and as a human being on the other end. This then relates to this other theme, this big theme that's in the book of James. I couldn't figure out a good image, so I just put an owl. I hope hope that's all right with you guys. Um, And that's this idea of biblical wisdom. You know, wisdom in the world is just being really clever, making right decisions, investing in the right IPO and the right stocks. And, you know, that's the way a lot of people think about wisdom. But wisdom in the scriptures is not cleverness. It's not making good choices for a greater gain. It is knowing what belongs at the center, what is truly the most important in life. In other words, biblical wisdom is about having a right frame of reference, a right system by which you value things and devalue other things and if you really think about it that's at the bottom of how all of us live our lives and navigate through life you have some things you think are terribly important and that's why for example when there's 30 minutes to get ready for church one person will spend all 30 minutes in the bathroom getting ready and the other might spend 15 of those minutes on the floor of their bedroom preparing their heart Depending on what you really think is most important, you will make choices and behave in certain ways and invest your whole life in different directions. And that's really what we're talking about. And I'm sure you've met lots of people who are very smart but not very wise. There is a difference between being wise and being clever. I know plenty of people who are smarter than me in almost everything but foolish in every way that counts. If you want wisdom, you can't just read books and go out and get it for yourself. What James is teaching us is the kind of wisdom we're talking about is not gaining new information. It's about reevaluating what's important to us. And you you can't gain a whole new value system just by thinking about it. God's got to flip a switch in you so that he says to you, who cares if you're having a bad hair day? You can meet the Savior at church this morning. Get on your knees and prepare your heart. Stop doing your hair. Do you understand what I'm saying? Is you can't stop loving money just because you read a book that says, hey, stop loving money. You can't stop loving what you love until God flips a switch in you. And so we ask God to make this change in us. And related to that is this idea of how do we reconcile then that some Christians experience wealth and others experience poverty. How do we make sense of the fact that some Christians will live their whole lives poor and others will be fabulously wealthy. Now, we can take, you know, maybe the the cultural approach that says, well, those who work hard get rich and those who are lazy and don't study get poor. It's not, life is not nearly as simple as perhaps, um, you know, conservative radio might make you think. It's not that simple. Hard work has something to do with it. But what James is teaching us is that our lot in life is used by God to teach us a great deal about what we value. 
and that it's possible to be materialistic if you're poor and if you're rich. The materialism of the poor says the only thing that matters is money, and I ain't got none. And so as a result of not having money, I hate my life. I'm bitter. I'm depressed. I'm in despair. I feel hopeless. The materialism of the poor is that because money is so highly prized, without money, there's nothing to be happy about in life. There's no value to be found anywhere. The materialism of the rich is that money is so highly valued that because I have lots of it, that's all I really need. That my true religion, the one that makes me safe and secure, is my balance in my checking account and my ability to make more money in the future. And what James says is both have it wrong. It's the wrong view of money. Money has value, but when you assign it more value than it deserves, it will derail your entire life. When you assign to money more importance, more centrality than it should have, everything in your life will get skewed. I love this painting. <laughs> it's, it's, this painting was done 500 years ago, but that's still the same universal symbol for, seriously, Lord, it's not my fault. It's this lady over here that you sent me made me do it. And that gesture of passing the buck is a universal experience. It is a human nature to blame others when we've done wrong. We even blame God. James 1.14 says, But each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. What James is teaching us is, yes, there's a lot of bad stuff out there that pulls at our hearts, but if we didn't have a heart with hooks on it to pull in, we would be immune to a lot of those things. And you know what I'm talking about. For some of us, money doesn't matter. We're not, we're not thrown off by money, but alcohol or sexual images or other things pull at us, right? And so depending on what your weakness, what hooks you have, you could be completely immune to some things. I know people who can't look at a chocolate cake without completely falling apart. I am powerless in the face of chocolate. Others are going to go, what? That looks gross. Do you see what I'm getting at? You know what it feels like to have absolutely no draw to some things and be completely powerless in front of other things. What James is saying is the thing to look at is not the boogeyman out there in the world who's making you do anything, but to think about where the desire in your own heart is. And I think Pastor Tim Keller, uh, we referenced him in that message, he really helps us. He said, we're not just talking about desire, which is a normal part of healthy humanity. We're talking about over-desire, which is not wanting bad things, but wanting some things too badly. It's when a thing you want now takes on a God-like proportion in your heart so that you want that thing more than you want anything. Dietrich Bonhoeffer reminded us that we, we don't sin in the face of temptation because we hate God, but because at that moment we've forgotten about God. We want this thing so badly that's why somebody can cheat and say, I still love you, but I just lost myself in the moment because I was looking at this person. It's baloney. You know that, right? But it's what happens to us when we're so enticed is we forget who we belong to. We forget the one that we love. Now, you can't just turn that desire off, can you? You can't say, I don't like that stuff anymore. I don't care about money. I don't care about chocolate. I don't want to look at that stuff on the Internet. You can't make yourself flip that switch. And so Thomas Chalmers reminded us, the only way to break the hold of a beautiful object on the soul is to show it a more beautiful object. 
And basically what he's saying is this. I think this is the message of James as well. You can't make yourself stop loving what you love until your heart is taught to love something better even more. It's the only way you're going to overcome that dark desire in your heart is to find someone you love even more than that thing which you love. Now, because all of us will struggle with sin and temptation, every now and then God has given us one another to sharpen each other. And so that was part of sermon number six is, are you open to the truth? My dear brothers and sisters, take note of this. Everyone should be quick to listen, slow to speak, and slow to become angry because human anger does not produce the righteousness that God desires. And basically, that that is when we see another person go off the rails, it's loving to say something to help them get back on track. I mean, that's what love is. That's why teenagers, you hate it when your parents do this, but man, you would hate it even more if they didn't. If they watched you throw your life on, like, whatever, it's not my life. I'm already happy. I have an income. I have a family. If they said that, your life would be completely off the rails. And so it's important that we say something when we see somebody else wandering from the truth. But here's the thing. We're not always welcoming those voices of truth in our life. And so part of it is when you are wandering and drifting away from the faith, it's important to remember to remain open to the truth. That if someone loves you enough to speak the truth to you, you've got to listen. And it's also very important then to be choosy which voices you let yourself listen to. That's why I've given you a picture here of my favorite headphones, the Bose noise-canceling headphones. Because what that does is it it lets you listen only to what you're trying to listen to, and it filters out all the noise. And this is just a word from James to us. Be choosy which voices you listen to, because those voices are controlling you more than you realize. Then James moved on to this concept that Scripture is for us like a mirror. It's held up like, like something that when you look at it, you see the truth about yourself. And do you remember in in this sermon we talked about how if you've ever just spent five minutes in harsh lighting just staring at your own face in the mirror? It'll freak you out a little bit because I don't know if you've ever made eye contact with yourself. I have a hard time making prolonged eye contact with people in general, but I found that I am the hardest person to make eye contact with. I don't want to go there. When I really stare at myself, I'm not always sure I want to know what's really going on in there. Scripture is like that for us. If you gaze deeply at Scripture, you're not just going to learn something about God, but you're going to learn something true about yourself. And when you see the truth about yourself, it's not meant to just make you go, wow, I have a big booger just floating around in my nostril. Every time I breathe in and out, it flutters in the way. You know, if you notice that and you don't clean it out, that's messed up. When you see the truth, and you do nothing about it, that's self-deception. That's what James says. Is if the Bible shows you the truth about you, and you, all you do is acknowledge and do nothing about it, what was the point of you seeing the reflection in the first place? We don't observe that the spinach in our teeth just so we know that fact, but so that we can do something about it. And that's why it says, be doers of the word and not hearers only thereby deceiving yourselves. 
You see, the common idea is when a sermon is being preached, the preacher is on trial. Is it going to be good? Are you going to keep me awake? Are you going to tell the truth? And we're hoping the preacher does a good job of presenting the truth. What we don't as much acknowledge is that you as the hearer of a message are also on trial. That it's not just about getting something out of the sermon, but God's desire is to get something out of you through the sermon. That he wants to know that you've not just heard the words, but that you've seen the truth and are ready to do something about it. For those of you who are intellectual, this is going to be your Achilles heel, is that you will approach every message from an intellectual perspective. Is he telling the truth? Has he exegeted the text well? Is he off on that Greek participle? And knowing all this without ever placing your own life right on the altar and saying, what about me? Self-delusion is such an easy thing to fall into. I, I know it because I'm wrestling with it all the time as a preacher. I want to challenge you, when you hear and understand the truth, will there be a response? And James picks up that theme and says, you know, what is true religion? Is it becoming an expert in the scriptures? Is it being knowledgeable about everything God has said in 18 languages? Is that the real goal that God is after is to make us experts related to a body of truth? There's nothing wrong with the truth and the pursuit of it with diligence. I hope that we will be lifelong students of the faith. But as Pastor Frank pointed out when he preached this message, religion that God our Father accepts as pure and faultless is this, to look after orphans and widows in their distress and to keep oneself from being polluted by the world. What James is saying is this faith of ours is not a faith made up of words and ideas alone. They are words and ideas with heavy consequence. And that the only religion God considers true is the religion that, is, that, that comes from knowing and feeling and then is translated into living and doing. Apart from that connection between the heart and the hands, we cannot lay claim to a true Christianity. We're almost halfway done. I love this picture. It's of a pool in China. You got to pay extra, a lot extra, to swim on the left side. <laughs> so this dude's really rich, and all the other people are like, "Hey, look, it's so much less crowded on the other side of that barrier." That would never work in the U.S. Okay, people would be like, "Hey, you can swim under this thing," <laughs> and that would break down right away. In China, that works. Okay, it's just people respect the rules over there. That picture offended me so much when I first saw it. Still offends me. Something's so wrong about pictures like that. Yeah, I get it. You pay more, you, you, you should enjoy a better seat. But there's something about a, a fundamental offense you feel when you look at the way some people think about humanity and about the world. They don't just believe they have more, but that they are more. And this is what James says, having grown up in the home of Jesus, the greatest human being ever, who also was God, he never saw that kind of pride or favoritism pop up in his brother's life. And so I think what he's saying is it's possible to have so much more. It's even possible to be more committed to a good work ethic, to make sound decisions, to not give in to instant gratification. Pat yourself on the back. Those are virtues that are not easy to come by. But you cross a line when you believe that you are somehow fundamentally at the base, the essence, superior to another person who can't do those things. 
I think this is especially an American problem. Because in America, because of the American dream, because of the freedoms open to us, hard work translates into a better life so much more easily than in most parts of the world. Here in America, it's not guaranteed, but if you work hard, you can actually improve your situation in life. Do you know how many places in the world you can work your butt off for 80 years and do nothing to make a dent in your welfare because it is what it is? And for us, it's hard to distinguish between my virtues and my worth before God. What James says is when you see yourself as being better, worth more than another human being, you grieve the heart of the, of the Father God who sees every person as his child. That segues into this thing that he calls the royal law. There are two laws that come from God. One is the moral law, which speaks to or reflects the holiness and justice of God. This is the dot your I's and cross your T's law. The law that's easier to keep because it's measurable. You can say, look, I did this, I did this, I did this, I'm fine. And then there is the royal law, which is not as easy to follow because it's a little more abstract. It's a little more subjective. It's not do this, do that, do this, do that. But it is be like this. Don't just do the things that are loving. Be loving like God is loving. The royal law is to love others the way you love yourself. It revolves around love and relationship, not around religion and activities and duties, which we can check off of a list. Most people prefer religion to relationship. Most people prefer the moral law to the royal law because it's easier to say, I've done it. I had my quiet time. I went to church. I tithed. What else do you want from me? And I think God would say the same way that a, a neglected wife would say to a man, yeah, you fed us, you clothed us, you whatever, you paid your taxes, you stayed out of jail, great. But you never really liked us very much. You never seemed like you wanted to be home. Do you get that feeling? What God is saying to us is he does not want our performance. He wants us. And he wants us to think about the faith that way. And not simply to keep a checklist of moral obligations, but to become like him in his essential quality of love. Having said that, James moves on to the, one of the central concepts of his letter, that faith without works is dead. Faith without works is dead. Just as a body without the spirit is dead, so faith without deeds is dead. We're not saved by works, okay? We don't do works in order to be saved. There's something called saving faith, which by believing and trusting in Christ, we are saved. But then on the basis of that, there is what we call living faith, which is the the way that we show we've been saved is by the way that we live. I can point back to a historical event in August of 1984 when I was born again and I cried for three hours straight. I turned my life over to Jesus. That's the day I became a follower of Jesus Christ, a born-again Christian. I can point to that historical marker in my life for the rest of my life and say, that's when I became a Christian. But the ongoing proof that something happened inside of me is seen in the way that I live today. I'm not living a certain way in order to be saved, but I'm living in this way because I am saved. 
I don't breathe in order to be alive. I breathe because I am alive. Do you get the difference? <laughs> okay. How are we doing so far? Anybody zoning out? All right. He then moves on to this idea that try as we might, it's so hard, so hard to control ourselves. He says, all kinds of animals, birds, reptiles, and sea creatures are being tamed and have been tamed by mankind, but no human being can tame the tongue. It is a restless evil full of deadly poison. I think the reason James is suddenly talking about words is because what he's saying is words are one of the most visible ways to find out where a person's heart is. I think you can accurately say that our words are a window into our heart. Some people are really good at lying and they can spout words all day long that are deceiving. But most people, if you stay around them long enough, you'll know where their hearts are because their words can't mask it for too long. Eventually, in a moment of weakness, you will say what's really down in your heart. You know how when you're just getting to know someone, there's so many things you want to say to them, you're like, not yet, too early, I don't know them well enough. So you hold back, right? They're making a mess out of their kid, and you're like, oh, I want to lecture them about the way they're disciplining their child, but I'm not going to say anything yet. But you stay friends long enough, eventually you're going to go, listen, I can't take it anymore. You have got to give your kid some limits. Your kid's a monster. I can't stand it. And so you want to say something, but you don't say because it's in there, but it doesn't come out until much later. The words we speak are a window into what's really in our hearts. So that's why what James is saying is don't focus on controlling your words. That's just behavior management. It's being political and polite. What you've got to really focus on is the reservoir you're drawing from. What's in your heart? What's in your heart? You cannot focus on growing spiritually if you focus only on the external deeds. Ultimately, everything rises out of our heart. It does. And that's why the place to think about is not, oh, you know, like, what, what did we make fun of in that sermon? All these Christianized swear words. Oh, fiddlesticks. Oh, snap. Oh, shut the front door. You know, <laughs> we have all these things that we know what we really want to say, but we found safe moral ways to swear. That's the kind of nonsense James wants us to do. Away with. Stop trying to change the behavior. Think about the heart out of which it rises. You can't tame the tongue, but you can submit the heart to Christ. There's two kinds of wisdom. And this ultimately is about, remember that uh, the Copernican model, the universe we talked about? Where astronomers looked at the night sky and they assumed for ages that the earth was at the center of the solar system. And that kind of worked, except that the smart guy said, I don't know, there's a few equations that are totally thrown off. We can't reconcile our observation and the math. And then Copernicus said, hey, what? What if the sun's at the center and not us? And then the mathematician said, That makes sense of everything now. Once we changed what was at the center, everything else resolved. It made sense. We don't have these weird, inexplicable anomalies anymore. Now we understand how it all works. And that's really what we're talking about. Worldly wisdom says you're at the center of everything. 
that everything that happens should be interpreted by how it affected you, how it benefited you, how it hurt you. Because guess what? This, is, this whole life, it's the motion picture of you. You are at the center of every scene. You must be the star of this show. It must be Dave Lee, the motion picture. Because I'm always in every scene. You guys are just extras, man. Some of you, my wife gets at least co-star, okay? But this must be the movie of my life because I'm always at the center. And that's worldly wisdom. And even when you live like that, you know something's off. Like, I can make a lot of noise. I can make everyone around me miserable. But I'm not happy. I don't feel good about this. And then Jesus moves properly into the center. And suddenly, the whole equation resolves. And you understand how it all works. Heavenly wisdom is knowing that God alone belongs at the center of everything. And when that becomes the frame of reference, everything else starts to fall into place. Thanks, Johnny. Then James went on to talk about the roots of conflict. This is a a photo, a recent photo from the Ukraine. All over the world, there are a lot of people that are ticked off right now. And you understand... The conflict is an inescapable part of life on earth. Even with the person you said you would love till death do us part, hasn't that person been one of the people you've been most angry and frustrated with on this planet? Because you love so much, you also can hate so much. And what James is saying is, where does this conflict come from? And his answer is, what causes quarrels and causes fights among you? Is it not this, that your passions are at war within you? What James is saying is, the conflict doesn't really arise because two people got mad at each other, but because a person had no peace within himself first. There's what we want and what we can righteously have, and that's at war, and we don't feel peace within our hearts apart from being fully submitted to Jesus Christ, accepting what he gives us, we will never really have peace. So I will always have this conflict I carry everywhere, which says, I don't have everything I want. I don't get the justice I deserve. Nobody loves me as much as they should love me. My rights are trampled on. No one cares about my my happiness. No one listens to my voice. And as we carry that around with us, we don't have peace in ourselves. And I promise you that that lack of inner peace will spill over into conflict with other people. The reason most couples fight is not because they've done bad things to each other, but it starts with they don't have peace with God and within themselves so that they can't live with anybody. And James says, until you address the conflict in your own spirit and find peace with Jesus Christ, You will always have conflict with everyone else. And you can actually go on believing that the whole world has a conspiracy against you. Do you know anyone like that who believes that every fight, it's always someone else's fault. I just walk through life minding my own business, being 100% righteous, and everyone else is such a jerk. Do you know anybody who believes that, truly believes that? I think most teenagers believe that. I mean, in fact, I'm convinced of it. Most teenagers believe that in every situation they've done right and everyone's just being so mean. I think most husbands believe every wife is like that. <laughs> most wives believe every husband is like that. We've got to get peace with Jesus Christ within ourselves, or we're going to walk around this idea that it's everybody else's fault. Message number 15. He says, when you have conflict with others and you don't have peace within yourself, eventually you will wander even from the God you say you worship. 
Adultery is a painful image. It's the idea that somebody made a promise of faithfulness to somebody, and then they didn't keep it. And just the idea of somebody that you love trampling on your heart and cheating on you sends daggers into your heart, doesn't it? God often uses marriage as a metaphor for the relationship he wants to have with us. And he says, when you stray from me, it's not a religious failure. It hurts the way adultery hurts. And that's exactly the language God uses again and again in the Bible. You can commit adultery two ways, outright betrayal where you give your heart to someone else or through neglect where you say, yeah, I'm here, but I'm not really here. And both of those forms of spiritual adultery grieve the heart of God. Because we are sinful and weak, every Christian is likely at some point in their Christian journey to wander away from God. Straying is a very common part of the Christian story. And so James immediately says after that, but when you find that you've drifted away from God, know that God is not like a jilted lover who pushes you away. But he says to you, even when you have committed adultery against me, I'm not the one who bars the front gate and says, you get the bed you made in, you lie in it. You did this to yourself. He does not bar access back to himself. But what he says is, if there is genuine repentance, if you respond to your adultery, not in pride and and defiance, but in humility and brokenness, there's always a road back home to God. He says, come near to me, and I will come near to you. That's not our experience with most human relationships when there's a break. There have been times when, as a husband, I have done something wrong, and I tried, sorry, honey, and what would you get? <laughs> Withdrawing, turning, withholding. And that hurts even more than outright anger, doesn't it? Where they, they pull themselves away and say, no, you can't have me. I'd rather she punch me in the face. Let's on, let's go, come on. At least I could deal with that, but that, uh, like hunkering down in the turtle shell, that hurts because I feel like I can't break through. And some of us wrongly think God is like that. Oh, I screwed up big time. God doesn't want to even look at me. And that's where you've got it wrong. He is not like that at all. Now, when you see others wander away, what's your reaction? It's quite often to look down your nose and say, look at them. So James says, do not slander one another. And do not stand in judgment over others. Now listen, that doesn't mean you can't discern between what is right and wrong. That's judgment. What James is arguing against is judgmentalism. That says, I am somehow spiritually, morally superior to you. And when I see you struggle, I think you're pathetic. I think you're just weak. I think you're just rebellious. The truth is we all struggle with different things. That doesn't mean to minimize the sin we see happening in others' lives, but to approach them with at least a measure of humility and grace. Rounding the corner to the end. Message 18, James talked about boasting about tomorrow. 
Do you remember the question I asked in the beginning of this message when I preached it? How many of you who are older than 30, 35, your life is exactly the way you thought it would be at this stage? Anybody over 40 in this room? Just raise your hand proudly. Come on. Middle-aged people, my tribe. How many of you, your life turned out exactly the way you planned when you were 20? Any of you? I can tell you right now, I have four kids. In a million years, I never thought I'd have four kids. Life does not turn out the way you plan or expect. Okay? Younger people, listen to us. <laughs> Every last person who raised their hand said, <laughs> no, it didn't, didn't turn out at all the way I thought. And because we have so little control over the way our life unfolds, it's, it's not a mystery why we try to exert some kind of control over things. We even start planning, saying, well, tomorrow, I, listen to a high school graduate. What are you going to do when you get out of college? I don't know. I'll probably start my own company, make like a million in the first year, you know, and just take it easy, sail around the world. I love listening. To, I, I, I forgot what it's like to be that, that um, idealistic and believe in things. But it's also a little bit naive. When we plan, there's nothing wrong with planning, but we must plan with humility and with a submissive spirit. Because some things will happen to you that you would never plan and would never welcome in your life. And if your picture of tomorrow is only acceptable because it's your picture, life will kick your butt. In the 19th sermon, James spoke about the way that we use power. It's one of the ways that we try to control our lives is when we get any measure of power, the way we use it says a lot about our hearts and about our character. Most people, when they don't have power, we do what we do. We grovel because even though our skin is crawling, I'm, I'm so much better than this, I will grovel if that means you give me what I need. I will be really polite to that lady at the DMV, even though she's not really doing her job very diligently, because I have no other option. I'm going to be like, thank you, ma'am. Thank you for being so patient. I'm like, oh, if there was a private DMV, I'd go there right now. (laughs) When people have power, the way they use it really speaks to their heart. And there's power that every one of us has at some level. Some of us have power over another person's heart. You may be married to someone and you have tremendous power over whether they experience a happy and joyful life or a miserable life. You have that power. What do you do with it? Do you squeeze the jugular and say, oh, this is all I got. I'm not going to let you out of my clutches. Or do you use your power to give life away? To increase joy around you? Is the power you're given used only for yourself? Or is the power you're given used for others the way that Jesus would have intended in giving you that power? One of the greatest compliments you can hear is that you use power well. If you're popular, if you're beautiful, if you're smart, the way you use that power speaks to your heart. Pastor Jared reminded us in sermon number 20 that there are certain trials in life that you have no power to face. All you can do is ride it out, sit through it, endure to the end. Most of us will do whatever we can to alleviate our suffering, but every one of us will come upon a suffering which we just don't have the power to get rid of. 
if your source of power is money, there will be problems that money can't buy your way out of. If your source of power was beauty, there are some places you would say, um, I should get into this university. I'm beautiful. And you're like, that doesn't work here. That's, that's the wrong kind of power for this context. Whatever power you trust in, you will meet trials where your source of power is not enough. How do you hope and endure through that kind of trial when there's nothing you can do but wait? And Pastor Jared reminded us that one of the great hopes we have is that the Lord's coming is near, that he will deliver us so many times in this earthly life, but even if he doesn't, one day this trial will pass and we will enter glory. And that we don't just endure it, but if we endure it with our eyes on him, we can actually come out of it having grown in our faith. A couple of weeks ago, gave a message on a call to prayer. And the important takeaway from this is that God doesn't just want us to pray when we're in need, but he wants us to pray even when we're happy. <clears throat> Teenagers who go off to college often fall into the trap of calling home only when they need money for pizza. Any parent who's got a kid in college knows when the caller ID rings, they know that the kid's going to start out smart. Hi, mom and dad. How are you guys? How's your health? And, but you know before they say bye, they're going to say, um, I sure is hungry. <laughs> I lost 10 pounds already because I can't buy pizza like the other kids who have rich parents. And, you know, so they'll get you because that's human nature too, that we only reach out to our father when we need something. But he's saying, I'd like to hear from you when you're just in a good mood, when you're happy about your good hair day, when you're happy that the weather is nice because I made that weather for you. What he's saying is prayer is not this religious activity, but prayer is a way of acknowledging the reality of God in every space in my life. He really is here, and he listens to what I say. And the more we acknowledge him that way, we'll find even the prayers we lift up are not self-centered prayers. They're prayers that are in alignment with our true picture of God. Finally, last week, talked about bringing the wanderer home. We said earlier that most Christians at some point will stray away from God for a season. And they owe so much to the people who are committed enough to them to chase after them, reach out to them, and bring them home to the Father. When you've struggled spiritually, aren't you so grateful for the people who endured your ugliness and your meanness and your bitterness and stayed through all of that? While you're spitting in their face, they endured it, and they helped bring you back home to the Father. You don't have to raise your hands, but aren't there some of us who went through some very bad seasons? And thank God for the perseverance of a brother or sister who did not judge us, who did not push us away, but stayed after us and brought us home. I hope that's going to mark our church, that we will not be the army whose soldiers kick their own wounded. But when we see someone stray from God, we will pursue after them in grace and humility and lead them back to the Father. What I love about the book of James is that it's not pie-in-the-sky theology. I'd never read the book of James and go, what is this dude talking about? 
What I love about James is that the way he writes, he gives you this idea that the Christian faith is the faith of real life. It's flesh and bone faith. It's faith for the hard times. It's faith in the middle of divorce. It's faith in the face of terminal cancer. It's faith in the face of a dead-end job or zit on your forehead on prom night. It's real faith for real life. I think we need to remember that that's the kind of faith that our God is inviting us into. It is not simply a faith up here or just in here, but out here. I hope you were blessed by this series as much as the pastors were blessed preparing them. These messages messed with us as we were writing them, as we were delivering them. And I hope that you will look back and consider some of these messages that God really still has unfinished business with you and wants to do something in your life through it. Before I end, I'll let you know that our next series coming up is called This Is How We Do It. I can't say it without hearing that song. But <laughs> I, I was going to bust it out, but I, I'm, I'm going to spare you. But, <laughs> but it's, a, it's a series about, it's a shorter series about what a worship service is. Because we can so easily go through the motions of this gathering every week and not know how much power is in each of the elements of a worship service. So we're going to talk about how we worship God and what each of these pieces means so that on Sunday after Sunday, we would not be drones just going through the motions. But we would understand what a gift each one of these elements of worship is for us. I hope you'll be excited about that next series. Can I invite you just to bow with me in prayer? Thanks for listening to the sermon from Harvest Community Church. If you would like more information or have any questions or comments, check out our website at harvest-community.org. Thanks for listening.